This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today, in person, I have one of the authors of Outside Money in School Board Elections, The Nationalization of Education Politics. The book is published by Harvard Education Press, written very small on the binding of the book. Sarah Recca, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Very happy to be here. I know. So often, I'm recording via phone or the internet. Today, you're here in New York visiting so you had the chance to come in and talk about this great book you've been on before, uh, uh, so people may remember you, but maybe you can give us the briefest of brief uh, introductions to who you are and also to your uh, two co-authors, uh, Jeffrey Hennig and Rebecca Jacobson. Absolutely. So I am an associate professor at Michigan State University uh, in political science, and uh, I wrote a book, Follow the Money, uh, outside, and, um philanthropic money in, in uh, education politics. And uh, for this project, I have two fabulous co-authors to work on school board elections and uh, changes in uh, funding streams. And uh, one of my co-authors, Jeffrey Hennig, uh, is a professor at Teachers College at Columbia University. Uh, and then Rebecca Jacobson is a professor in the College of Education and is over at Michigan State with me. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, Jeff has been on before with his book, uh, Rebecca Hassan. Uh, so this is the first time that uh, we get to read what she has uh, been working on. Um, this, like many of the things that you write, is is the book that I wish I had written first. So I'm always very jealous of your great uh, the great work that you do. And this book is is really um, another one of those. So let's talk about the book. Um, you start uh, the book talking about this puzzle of outside money. Uh, what's so puzzling about this role of outside money? particularly in the case of school board elections, which you focus on. So let's just start talking about the puzzle. Sure. So what what seemed puzzling to us is that if you look at uh, school board elections, whether it's in uh, the media or in scholarship, um, it's they're characterized as very low profile. They don't get a lot of media attention, very low voter turnout. And added to that is the way education uh, policymaking has changed uh, over the last 15, 20 years, where so much power over education has migrated up to the state and federal governments, uh, No Child Left Behind being kind of the most iconic uh, and substantial change in that regard. And so the idea that people who live far, far away from a particular school board uh, race would think it, it makes sense to write checks, five-figure <laughs> checks, um, to fund uh, candidates and organizations in what is low-profile 
And arguably, at least from the way education policymaking has changed, seemingly not the most as important of a venue, at least as it's been discussed, that federal government or state government is where it's at for education policymaking. So that was the puzzle to us is what what's in the minds of these donors that they think this is a good idea or an influential way to operate. Right. And, and as you just sort of note, another theme of the book is nationalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I think you, as you just sort of mentioned, this is sort of an odd phenomenon to apply to education policy, mm-hmm. which is so thought of as the local, most local of local mm-hmm. activities. Um, maybe you can talk just very briefly about some of the macro trends of nationalization. Yeah. Um, and then what led you to believe that they might apply to these local school board elections? Sure. So part of uh, what we also want to emphasize in the concept of nationalization is how it's different from what I was speaking about that we characterize as centralization, the idea of policymaking at the state or the federal level, uh, that that's sort of an administrative uh process where policymaking comes down from higher levels of government and nationalization. And uh, Dan Hopkins has that great book, The Increasingly United States. And in, in that, in, in certain regards, we're, we're talking about a parallel type of phenomena that to what he's discussing, that this is about politics. It's about coalitions operating across jurisdictional boundaries Um, It's about the idea that the way issues get framed at a national level, sort of the coalitions that arguing, whether it's, you know, in in so much of our politics between Democrats and Republicans in schools, you get different, some often more specific issues like charter schools and the degree to which coalitions that have formed and in some cases polarized um, at higher Mm -hmm. levels that that penetrates into local politics and people latch on to those uh, frames and ideas um, at the local level. Yeah, you you examine um, this with a great deal of depth uh, in five uh, what you call election sites, uh, Bridgeport, Denver, Indianapolis, Los Angeles, and New Orleans. So why these five? And, And what's the time period that you study? And what are the types of data that you measured? Sure. So we, uh, uh, do not claim to have chosen representative cases. That was not our aim. We uh, wanted to, we purposely selected these cases with the idea that this would be our best shot at understanding what nas- how nationalization is working, what is going on with money in school board elections. And so we selected cases where there had been media coverage of outside donors and new money coming into school board elections. When we did a broader scan, uh, we found about 43 cases uh, in the last 12 years that have had outside money. So these are not the modal school district, but it does uh, happen to a larger degree in in larger urban districts, so a place like Los Angeles. Um, And we look at school board elections, the data... In our, in our book, covers 2008 to 2014 election cycles. Um, that means we have three election cycles for four of our cases. New Orleans is the only one where we have two election cycles of data because they have school board elections every four years. And the data is all the campaign contributions that we could get from, <laughs> from the uh, campaign finance reports for all of these elections, which resulted in a data set of 18,809 campaign contributions from individuals, unions, businesses, PACs, the whole array of, 
of groups that might be up to putting money into. And if this is the <laughs> only thing you you uh, did, that would be that would be saying something. But it's not. You did, did even more than that, and we're going to get into that as well. Um, but but just on these data, mm-hmm. uh, one of the major areas of inquiry is the distribution of local donors versus non-local, or what you call national donors. Yeah. Um, what did you anticipate finding about this balance? Yeah. And and what did your findings ultimately show? Sure. So we, um, I think we we anticipated finding some indication that the donors who lived out of state um, were going to be giving writing larger checks, and and so their their presence in the election would be um, outsized to a degree. I mean, partly just based on who the people are. We're talking about an individual like Michael Bloomberg is in our data set, and. He has a lot of money to put into politics, so you would expect that 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 would be a lot. I think what we didn't realize is how large it would be in certain elections and for certain candidates. So there are candidates who who for whom forty percent of their contributions from individuals came from this category we call large national donors, and these are people who. Um, in a given election cycle, gave to at least one ca- uh, campaign out of state and gave $1,000 or more. $1,000 might not sound like that much, but in school board elections, these are these are large contributions. And many of our outside donors uh, are giving tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to elections. Now, um, why would they do this? Um, why would someone uh, living out of state uh, get involved in a in a school board election. It would seem to serve no particular self interest, um, especially no particular self economic interest. Mm-hmm. So, what is it? Um, how do you explain it, either theoretically yeah. or observationally, about their inclination to do this? Is it simply that they're invited to do it, and relative to other donations they give, this is a small amount of money? So, what's the what's going on? So I feel like there's two uh, stories we're able to trace out. So one is going to be familiar to people who study campaign contributions and political science more generally. And this is the way in which, so if you look at congressional elections, for instance, the the rise of out-of-jurisdiction giving, more House candidates, more Senate candidates raising more money from out-of-state. Um, and the donors in our data set, this group, we end up identifying 132 people who fit the large national donor profile are prolific in federal campaign giving. So we looked at all of their federal giving in 2012. They give a lot of money. And so for, for these individuals, giving in politics and giving outside of their jurisdiction is not an unusual behavior. It feels normal to them. So I think that's one important thread to emphasize. But the second is education specific. Why school boards? And when we looked up their board memberships, we found um, quite a few of them on the boards of education nonprofits uh, like Kemp Charter Schools, Teach for America, New Schools Venture Fund, and others. And we actually found some of them serving on boards with other donors, which suggested some degree of actual personal connections between the individuals. Yeah. Now we've talked uh, for, I don't know how long, but we have not yet talked about unions. And for most Mm. people, if they know anything about school board elections, the only thing they would know is that unions are the ones who typically are the major financial contributors. Um, You discover something pretty unusual. I'll call it unusual about the 
intra-union patterns of giving. Mm-hmm. That is the patterns within the sort of labor sector. Yeah. Um, so uh, who do unions give to? Mm-hmm. And was your finding as surprising to you as, as it was mm-hmm. to me? So we, yes, we track the union contributions as well across all of our cities. And there's a certain degree of variation because uh, unions in uh, Louisiana <laughs> are not the equivalent of Connecticut or, or California. Um, and we, we, so we find to, one thing we find is that in most of our cases, uh, teachers unions are ultimately being outspent by another group, which is education reform oriented organizations. Um, but then within the union sector, we also find that teachers, teachers unions usually are the, the largest union player in terms of money, but there are other unions as well. This was most evident in Los Angeles, where there's a a lot of other union money involved, but the other unions are not necessarily aligned with the teachers union. They are sometimes giving to candidates, different, a different slate of candidates. Um, And this might be um, unions that represent uh, service workers in the school district, for example, but it was very interesting to us to find that there was not some kind of solid block of union money that you could take for granted. Yeah. So, so what this what this means is the solidarity that we would typically assume for the the labor movement mm-hmm. um, is is not there when you look at these these five uh, cities. Yeah. Uh, that the uh, the unions are splitting some of their money between between candidates, and that's that's really I think pretty uh, yeah. surprising finding, and and sort of illuminates. Of what's going on in these elections? It's it's not a simple. Uh, at one point, the book used this phrase: the two sort of a two actor yeah. uh, political system. That's almost like a third actor mm-hmm. here. It's a uh, interested in labor issues, but not in the way that the teachers unions might might um, suspect. Another area uh, that surprised me was in candidate recruitment. Mm-hmm. That is, who is asking people to run mm-hmm. um, in school board elections? These are primarily novices uh, Mm -hmm. coming into this, probably the first electoral office most people would have served in. Um, uh, I naively assumed that teacher unions were very active in recruiting candidates. Uh I assume this is one of the main things they they do. Uh, You find something different through the interviews that you did. Uh Um, What did your interviewees tell you about who recruited them to run? Yeah, so we did about a couple dozen interviews with school board candidates across our cases and uh, asked about how they got into school board politics, how they raised money. Um, And in part, we were also trying to discern some things about uh, different types of candidates, those who were ultimately backed by union money or reform money or who, you know, if they were getting money from these out-of-state donors. And then there was also a group of unaffiliated candidates who are a a non-trivial portion. Um, And our candidates were, um, were tended to be the, they were, yeah, they were not uh, recruited or asked by unions, although we had a number who were, um, former teachers um, or who had union affiliations. Um, And additionally, the, the main distinguishing feature of the candidates who were who ultimately ran and uh, were backed by reform organizations or out-of-state money, there was a larger representation of people who had had a charter school affiliation among that particular group of candidates. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Meaning these, these sort of large organizations that support charter schools in lots of different ways are also getting involved in inviting people into the political process. They're serving as sort of the, the one of the functions that political parties have often served. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make sense? Is this what we have come to expect of these kinds of organizations? Or is this really a, a new discovery from the book? It's not something that I had read about before. Yeah, well, it is. In school board elections, political you would you would not expect political parties to be in. These are mostly non not all, but um, mostly nonpartisan elections. And I should add one caveat, which is Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Working Families Party ends up being a rather important player in, in that particular school district. Um, but we we are finding a a pretty interesting organizational apparatus, I suppose you could say, um, and. The, on the part of the reform-oriented organ, and I, I should put some names out there. So you have Democrats for Education Reform is one example. Stand for Children is another. There's a national level organizational component. They often have state chapters, and then those state chapters play a role in selecting school districts to get involved with um, at the at the electoral level. And I mean, interestingly, I'm, I'm remembering a specific example from Indianapolis where. Um, the I believe it was Stanford Children chapter was involved in helping candidates they were supporting hire uh, campaign managers um, or fun- people involved with fundraising. So they're they're providing some of the things you would expect a political party to do. Um, and you could say this is sort of making up for what is absent in these elections that have traditionally been not very professionalized. Um, or is well-organized because they're so local and they were, so you have such low dollar, so low profile for so long. So this all would seem to matter um, mainly if it influences the direction mm-hmm. of local policymaking. Yeah. If it doesn't, then this is just sort of spent money. Um, what did you discover when it comes to the issue agendas of the candidates and, and how this differed by whether they were supported uh, locally or supported by unions or supported by these reform-oriented out-of-state groups? So there are a few ways we were getting at this because we did the candidate interviews and then we also content analyzed media coverage of all, all of the elections. And so from the candidates, what we got when we asked them their issue positions, um, and this was after we, you know, we sort of knew a bit coming in from having seen their endorsements and their donors, um, and invariably, the candidates would want to add nuance to their issue position. So you might ask them about charter schools, and they might say, I'm for charter school expansion, or I, I don't, I'm not supportive of charter schools. But then they would have some specifics about their local school district or about uh, maybe about special education and charters and some particular things that Maybe if they were pro-charter but uncomfortable about special education and charter schools, they would discuss that. Um, and so the, the candidates tended to not want to be in quite as much of a box. But then when you looked at the media coverage, we found that was where we saw the, the strongest evidence of this kind of nationalization, whether it was in uh, coverage of the money itself 
or coverage of the issues or the negativity of the coverage going up um, when when there was more money in the campaigns. And then the candidates reacted to this. So then when we asked them about the, the nature of the election and the media coverage, they would say, you know, it's getting to be like national politics around here, like there's Democrats and Republicans, or there's charter and anti-charter, and everyone expects us to like play this role. And they, in some sense, maybe are even rewarded for playing a certain role because, another, as another person said, the donors like it <laughs> when uh, you know that's what they want. They want someone who's gonna, I think they said, like pound the table for for one side or the other. Now, when I was reading this book, I couldn't help but think about your last book. Uh, your last book that focused on the big philanthropy in school reform and education. And, and that's big money, mm-hmm. right? That's, we're talking about tens of millions yeah. of dollars. I wonder maybe we could wrap up our conversation mm-hmm. putting this book in the context of that book. Um, how are the two related? That is the large, large uh, 10, 20, 30 million dollar uh, grant work, uh, even more sometimes mm-hmm. of some of the major national philanthropies, and and compared to these campaigns, are they related in any way? Uh, are they related in a way that makes the campaign donations um, uh, different than the the grant work? Uh, how how are the two connected? If mm-hmm. They are. So I would say they are related. In some sense, they're very directly related because some of the same individuals are involved in both spheres. And so you have Eli Broad would be one of the most prominent examples of a a major education philanthropist who's also a very active campaign donor and is part of our data set. Um, Also, John and Laura Arnold. Um, philanthropists in education, also campaign donors. Um, Laureen Powell Jobs is another. So Reed Hastings, there, there's there's a number of people who fit uh, into both spheres. In terms of the amounts of money, I mean, I think it's important to emphasize, right, that the, the philanthropic money is is going to be kind of programmatic or supporting, you know, in some sense, very large projects. And also in campaign finance, you actually have legal limits, right, to the degree they might be giving the candidates. They actually, in some cases, can't can't give maybe as much as their their pocketbooks would otherwise enable them to do. And what's been interesting to me, and I wrote a little about this in a in a blog post for Hispel, has been that the my first book in LA is a case. So it was a case in my first book and a case in this book, and that there's been a bit of a change that that I feel like I kind of observed between the books and the behavior of donors that an Eli Broad kind of exemplifies this of people who started out focused on philanthropy and over time, and particularly once you get past 2011, 2012, started to give a lot of money in these in education oriented elections that they weren't doing um, in that the period when I wrote Follow the Money. And so the idea that you would align your political giving uh, closely with the goals of your philanthropy, so it's personal political giving, right? But it's somewhat more institutionalized philanthropy, right? You might have a private foundation or an LLC, right? So you're, this, but the, the idea that the two would, would, would go toward the same objectives, that um, you're Eli Broad and you're supporting these charter organizations in Los Angeles, and then you start to write very large checks to organizations supporting the candidates who are who are most sort of pro-charter in Los Angeles. Um, and what's, you know, 
I think very interesting. And if I were a donor or had the, or, or in conversation with a donor after something like the Los Angeles teacher strike, um, and you have a now pro, you know, ostensibly pro charter majority school board just voted for a charter moratorium in Los Angeles as a condition of that, after that strike, the, the vote was a condition of the strike and then they wound up passing. It suggests that there's, you know, that, that, there's something about maybe the way the the political money is is making the agenda is is galvanizing their opposition, right? So the unions have have struggled. <laughs> um, they've been outspent uh, in at least in the cases in our book. Um, but a strike that that turned out to be a powerful move there and. Um, it, it, you know, it, I think the the way in which the campaigns developed uh, in this very polarizing way and with so much money involved, in part, helped to set up a situation where something like a strike seems like a strategic move. Yeah, the book, uh, again, the title is Outside Money and School Board Elections, The Nationalization of Education Politics, published by Harvard Education Press. The authors, in addition to Sarah Reckow, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Hennig, and Rebecca Jacobson. Sarah, thank you very much. You're welcome.